I'm assuming that people would know GitHub. Yeah, I was going to say, I hope. Hello and welcome in today's episode of How It's Built. We're talking with Ryan Nystrom. Ryan is the Director of Engineering at GitHub, supporting the teams building mobile and desktop apps. Hope you enjoyed. And it's uh, great to have you here. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, yeah. I'm stoked to kind of talk about some of the stuff we've been doing. Can you give some some of your kind of thoughts uh, what what the mobile app is for, for GitHub? Yeah. Um, so I actually, I joined GitHub in like May of um, 2019, actually to start the, the mobile app. Um, I had built um, an open source GitHub app called GitHawk um, that just caught GitHub's attention. Um, literally, the CEO DM'd me on Twitter and was like, this is pretty neat. Uh, let's talk about this. Um, and like one thing led to another. And um, eventually, they our, our ideas and, and values um, kind of aligned. And they were like, you just seem like a good fit to come here and um, to build our app. Um, it was something that strategically GitHub has been wanting to do for a long time. Um, and the stars just kind of aligned and uh, it, it was like a perfect opportunity. Um, yeah, so I, I joined and literally you know, like started a new Xcode project, um, brought over a bunch of ideas and stuff um, from GitHawk. You know, we started with what was just me and our designer um, has now grown into an iPhone app, uh, the iPad app, the Android app, um, and, and a bunch more. And, and uh, I, I am also now starting to oversee uh, GitHub's desktop app and command line app. From the get-go, we decided we're not going to just like rebuild GitHub in Swift um, and try to stuff it into an iPhone. Um, we decided to be pretty opinionated and, and stick with a couple core workflows we thought that mattered a lot to people um, when they were trying to use GitHub on the go. And, and this was a lot of um, experience um, that I had gained through, through building GitHawk. And it's, so it's mostly tailored around notifications, uh, triaging notifications, um, responding uh, and organizing issues. Um, and then probably what I'm most excited about is actually like uh, reviewing code um, and merging code, um, which I, I can kind of dig into is, is turned out to be like the surprising star feature um, of our app. And just to give a sense uh, of scale to our viewers, how big is the team now? So we have about four or five engineers um, on each platform. So four or five on iOS, four or five on Android. Um, we have a couple engineers that, that work on the API specifically for our mobile app. Um, we have two designers and then uh, a product manager. And then um, to kind of keep all that um, organized, we have two managers, two engineering managers, um, and then myself. Um, so I kind of oversee uh, all of mobile. Do you get to write any code these days or are you mostly kind of making sure that the team is working smoothly? It's maybe controversial. I actually still write quite a bit of code. I never put myself on what I call like the critical path. So if I'm ever working on something like really important um, and then I get pulled off into something else, like that would be devastating to the team. Um, so what I, I try to, to look out for polish items um, bugs, performance stuff, um, dev tooling and things. Um, not just, not because I have to, but I, I want to stay, um, I want just to like stay empathetic to our code base. This week was a, a 
crazy example because I literally uh, built this tiny feature on iOS. I polished some UI on Android. Um, I added a command flag on our CLI app and then was still doing a bunch of like manager product stuff. It sounds crazy, but it's super fun. Um, yeah. I, I think it's really, really fun. And it, it helps me. I mean, um, this was like one of the first PRs I put up for our command line app. And I like came back to the team and I was like, this is the smoothest onboarding experience I have ever like used. And I, and I use GitHub's code spaces uh, to do it. I was like, I just clicked a button. I ran make on the command line and then I ran make test and it, everything just like worked. Um, and it was fun for me to, to be able to bring that feedback back to the team and, and really appreciate um, the, the, all the work and effort that had gone into making that experience good. First uh, question that I wanted to kind of ask you is that uh, the app itself seems, yeah, as you mentioned, it's, it's focused on, on very particular flows and it's kind of highly dynamic in a sense that you can um, get from one place app to, to, to the, like there are, there are many to many relationship between uh, every kind of screen. And so can you talk a bit about high level organization of the, Kind of navigation and how does coordination of the uh, app navigation works? At its core, um, it's pretty vanilla uh, UI kit. Um, I would say somewhere between MVC and, and MVVM. We both come from Facebook. We've seen when an app gets really big, navigating around an app um, can be crazy. And if um, you know one screen of your app navigates to the other screen, and you don't have any sort of abstraction on how that like navigation or routing works, um, all of a sudden these two you know, view controllers are coupled to each other and all the dependencies of one are gonna be the dependencies of another. And then if that, you know, the, that destination view controller has another destination, has another destination, now you're like root, the dependency like list goes out of control. GitHub has uh, a lot of places you can navigate to and, and we only support in the app like a tiny subset of it. Um, but it's still a lot of stuff. I mean, you can go from a notification to a pull request, to a repository, to a user, to a repository, to a list of issues, to a, you know, and it just goes on and on and on and on and on. I didn't want to have this app with this just gigantic bucket of circular dependencies. Probably within the last like four months or so, we've landed on our latest version of like a routing library, you know, at its core, we have, we define routes um, as structs. So say you've got like a user route and that route will have data. Um, so a user route might just be like the username and maybe they'll like, uh, we use GraphQL. So maybe like the GraphQL ID. That route you will register in some like global entry point um, for the app. And with that registry comes a factory, like basically a function um, or a closure. So for a user route, return some sort of view controller. And in that um, closure is where you'll initialize your like user view controller, let's say, and inject whatever sort of properties from that route. Um, and then that's kind of that's it. It sounds really simple because it is like really simple. Um, the beauty of this system is in order to um, trigger a route, our API, um, takes advantage of the responder chain. And so from any place in the responder chain, uh, you know, it could be a view controller, could also just be a view. 
you can initialize like a user route that is, you know, like I said, just a username string and then like a GraphQL ID, maybe an int. And then from that, uh, that place that triggers some action, you tell the responder chain, perform this route, that bubbles up the chain, finds kind of like a root route performer. And then that does all the sort of like magic of looking up, okay, what route is registered to, or what factory is registered to perform, you know, a user route. It executes that factory, which will return a view controller. And then it figures out, depending on the state of the app, the view controller configuration, iPad, iPhone, and some other preferences, either pushes, displays, presents the view controller or something. Um, so we do have some kind of like, I, I wouldn't call it magic, but a bunch of like the logic baked into like the route performer um, uh, to do like the display and everything. But the nice part is that we end up with this just really boring, simple, uh, predictable API of, um, it's just structs. I'm just mm -hmm. gonna throw this struct into the responder chain and somebody's gonna worry, or somebody else is gonna um, figure out like the execution and display. And the result of that is that you don't have this origin destination dependency chain because the origin says, hey, perform this route, throws it up to some root performer who then creates and displays um, the other view controller. And the nice part about that is then structurally, these two view controllers can live in completely separate modules. It's actually really interesting. Responder chain is not the most, uh, like it's a controversial API to some degree, right? Yeah. Especially on the, on the Mac when, uh, uh, your window goes out of focus, like some, someone else gains the focus and the respond yep. chain is like kind of hard to predict. So why, what made you go with that direction? Uh, it ended up just kind of being the simplest API that we could piggyback on top of. Um, you're right, it does come with downsides. Uh, I mean, a simple one is we end up having to like box any sort of data, uh, Swift data that we send in like an NS object. Um, we have to use Objective-C selectors Mm -hmm. um, also, weirdly, we discovered that like the uh, scene delegate, the new like iPad window stuff, the template has, uh, it says it responds, or it is like a UI responder uh, delegate or whatever, um, but it's not part of the responder chain. And so we, we end up having to do this kind of like weird dance where like uh, it goes all the way up to like um, the app delegate who then like informs yeah. uh, okay. somebody to, to perform the actual route. Okay, yeah. Yeah, I'm guessing that the cost of, you mentioned boxing uh, type, so I'm guessing the cost of that is not too significant because it happens only on user action or, you know, exactly. sort, of, sort of, yeah, so it should be fine. Okay, and then, so what I was really curious about to hear is that, okay, so you, this magic kind of works and you throw the request and then someone else handles like, oh, we're gonna present this this view. So that's, that's someone else who is responsible for, for creating new view controller and presenting it one way or another. Uh, how aware does this piece of infrastructure have to be of the rest of the state of the app? So the, the, I, I kind of mentioned that like the, the, there's like a root route performer. Um, and so this object also has uh, what we call like a props data source. Um, and so this props data source is where kind of like app state dependency injection happens. Um, and so you would have, let's say like the app delegate um, that is kind of like the root app router it's also gonna have um, a reference to say like the current user session to like the um, like networker client or something. And so when this factory uh, is executed to create like a new, let's say user view controller, 
not only are you provided the route, which is going to give you um, the user route that might have the ID um, and the username, you're also going to get this kind of bundle of like, we call them props, um, just kind of borrowing from React, but, but like properties, um, which will have uh, anything, uh, basically app-wide state information that you can then inject into the view controller. So, um, you know, your current user session, your networker, um, you know, we have stuff like uh, global um, code settings, you know, if you're going to change like the way code is displayed in the app um, and those sort of things. So that way you can still inject basically any sort of like app state um, into your view controller without having to um, use notifications, um, reach into uh, like singletons. We have almost no singletons in the app. The view controller itself will have an initializer that says like, uh, you know, it accepts maybe a user ID and is current user because maybe like for the user view controller, we want to display like a settings button, maybe some other stuff if it's you. Um, and if you're looking at somebody else's profile, we want to just have it be more standard. Um, and so then the view controller itself has no knowledge about routing, routes, um, props, or any of this sort of stuff, which allows that view controller to live in like an entirely different module that doesn't have any dependencies on any of this infrastructure. Um, except probably the, the router, um, mm -hmm. because the view controller being part of the responder chain wants to be able to, you know, you're looking at your profile and you tap on, let's say a list of repositories. We want to navigate you to another view controller, which is going to go through the whole um, routing infrastructure. As you mentioned, there, there are many kind of destinations that any given view controller can potentially navigate to. So like you can navigate to user profile or, or like, yeah, as mm -hmm. you mentioned, all the repositories or whatever. Um, so is this information encapsulated in some sort of URIs that you're going to pass around? So like each individual view control doesn't have to actually know, like this is how you construct a user route to throw it in the router. They're just going to take an opaque URI or, or like how does that part work? All of the, the route registry and the performing of like these factory methods would live in like your main app target. And so mm -hmm. you would have a whole bunch of these like def definitions um, in order to register these routes. So you end up with like a huge list of like stuff that you register, a huge list of factories and stuff, but it, that can live in like one place that is joining all of these dependencies together. You guys use any sort of code genning for anything? You mentioned a lot of uh, structs and routes and all Not that. Not for any of the routing stuff. Um, this usually ends up being pretty basic, um, writing a route and then writing the factory. Um, mm -hmm. the, you know, lines of code wise to create a new route and to create a new factory might end up being like 30 lines of code or something. It's, it's pretty basic, um, very, very low maintenance. We use CodeGen for other stuff. Uh, we use Apollo for GraphQL, mm. which CodeGen's all of our queries. Um, we have some CodeGen for like asset libraries and a couple other sort of like bootstrapping, like project bootstrapping things. But other than that, um, we don't use a ton of CodeGen. I wanted to dive a bit deeper into the part where you mentioned a factory that uh, in response to some routes, it will create view controller, you know, mm -hmm. and everything that goes with it. So let's, let's start from generating this view controller. What is philosophy at GitHub? Do you use storyboards? No storyboards. We have no storyboards whatsoever. Um, Why not? Our, like, our launch interfaces. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I, I've just never, I've never liked them. <laughs> and because I guess I was like the first engineer, I kind of seeded some of our engineering principles. Um, I mean, I, I think that they're a pain in the butt to, uh, to manage. Um, 
like our, our projects, I think they're a pain in the butt to debug. Um, I, I certainly think that there's some nice things about them. And I know some other like really big companies um, do use them. I think if, if, if I recall correctly, Lyft uses storyboards like very heavily um, for a large engineering team. I think that's super impressive. We did use it for a couple things early on um, and replace them um, because we ended up with some like debugging stuff that was just really tricky and complicated. Um, we use auto layout for like everything. Mm. Um, and I think that's where some of this got complicated. Like we just wanted to have more control, um, more explicitness over our constraints um, and, and uh, in colors and view configuration and like all of this stuff, um, it, it certainly comes with a cost. Like there's a lot of constraint management. There's a lot of like boilerplate, like config and setup. but with a lot of our like asset, um, code gen, um, we use Snapkit for auto layout. Mm. And, and I think that that makes API like really easy. Um, I, I know that that some people love it. Some people hate it, but it works pretty well for us. Um, it's a lot easier, I guess, to, to rationalize. Not, and not only is, um, is it easy to rationalize, I think when it comes to code review, just looking at code is way easier to understand versus seeing a whole bunch of what is basically XML and trying to make yeah. sense of it yeah. um, uh, versus like reading the actual constraint logic. Storyboards is, is a topic people kind of debate, uh, but I wanted, I wanted it to, to be a bit more of a like factual rather than just opinions. And so things that you mentioned are, uh, potentially harder to review, uh, potentially more implicit code. Uh, and so like several sources of truth where you, you might have some sort of property set in the code or in storyboards and you're gonna have to tra track it down. So I'm kind of curious, like some of those points are actually solvable and over years, DevTools team at, at Apple, they kind of solved a uh, problem of making storyboards more modular so you can have mm -hmm. storyboard that reference other storyboards, et cetera. So let's say that all of a sudden someone makes a plugin for, uh, let's say, GitHub, so that in pull requests, you can actually see visual difference of your UI. What would change your opinion on storyboards? It's a great question. I don't, I don't think that that would change my opinion on, on storyboards. The, the explicitness of the code, uh, the searchability of the code um, outside of Xcode and without needing any, you, know, you could have just like, you could check the project out in VS Code or, or just do some like greps um, in your terminal and be able to like find stuff, um, I think is like a, is a big value to me. Um, it's also just very easy to trace um, when you're debugging, when uh, certain dependencies are injected, when certain things are configured in a certain way. There, there would have to be additional value, I think, in order to like change our mind. Um, I think that just just having like a visual representation would certainly be nice, but I don't think it would justify the cost and effort um, to go and change uh, what we do. And I and mm -hmm. I think at at its core, that's one of my biggest principles. Is is uh, I'm not too I am opinionated on patterns, but I'm I'm willing to change my mind and I'm willing to try new things. Um, but I, I favor consistency over everything. Um, sure. I, I would so much rather. Um, have a, a certain pattern and maybe it's got some downsides. And then if we're going to go to a new pattern, a new technology or something, then let's switch like 100% to this new thing um, so that we don't end up with a, a code base that's got a bunch of like, um, just is, it feels just kind of scattered. What are your thoughts on SwiftUI? Would you consider that? It, does it address some sort of some problems that you kind of mentioned with 
storyboards. So we support a minimum of uh, iOS 13, and we actually have shipped um, Swift UI um, in a couple small places, which which does kind of break my principle. Um, but you know, we we went at it with a kind of a, a ship to learn mindset of like, let's try it, let's see um, how do we get our project um, in a place where we can support previews. Um, let's try this. We had like basically one engineer um, ship a small feature in Swift UI and then kind of report back on like what worked, what didn't work. It took a long time. <laughs> it took a long time for us to get stuff um, design-wise into a place that we really, really liked. Um, there, there were some downsides. There was a, it was mostly just due to learning curve um, mm -hmm. to get things exactly how we wanted them. Um, and, and we're certainly open to it. I, I think it's the future. I, I like, I'm ready to do it like 100%. I still think just what I've read, what I've seen and like the very minimal Swift UI that I've ever written, um, it feels too early. Um, and it also getting to code review, it's the code's really hard for, for me personally to read um, and to reason. Um, and that's just like an education thing, but there's mm -hmm. so much kind of like implicitness in Swift going on with Swift UI that um, it, it's hard for me to follow. Um, but I think that it, it's getting a whole lot better, even in one year, um, it's come a long, long way. So no doubt that like, we are gonna eventually be using it and probably rewriting almost everything in it. Um, I would love to start building um, some smaller components, some smaller UI components and, and kind of sprinkling them um, in the app like we've done where it makes sense. Um, and then, yeah, just as the technology matures, uh, start investing in it more and more. Okay, let's maybe uh, move to, again, this app is like heavily reliant on networking. Our, our networking stack is kind of simple. Um, we, we rely on Apollo um, to abstract our GraphQL queries heavily. Um, and that's worked out honestly, like fantastic. There's actually a, a pretty recent GitHub uh, engineering blog post um, out there somewhere um, on how we use Apollo that, that goes into a ton of detail. Um, mm -hmm. but, but the gist is, you know, we write queries, um, we write GraphQL queries, we run an Apollo script, which generates um, all of our actual queries and mutations and objects for us that lives in a separate module. Uh, we import that module into the main app and, and just call these queries kind of at will. We don't allow any actual like networking code in like product code. Um, so all of our view controllers will actually depend on some sort of like interface, say, you know, if I'm going to fetch a list of repositories, we'll have like um, a repositories view controller client uh, protocol, which has an API that says fetch repositories with, with a like completion block and a result. And what's nice about this is that, again, we can kind of have, same with routing, we can kind of have these like self-contained view controllers that don't really depend on, they don't depend on Apollo, they don't depend on networking, they're not doing any networking themselves. Instead, they're telling this API, give me a list of repositories. Um, you'll return, um, you know, an array of repository view models or repository models, and then I'll configure them and show them in a list. So we have like a client that will then conform to these, um, these protocols and internally we'll be doing like, uh, we'll be depending on Apollo or our, our Apollo module, um, do the networking, do the parsing, convert an Apollo model into um, an app domain model. Um, so we don't actually use the Apollo generated models in our view code either. Um, which, which lends itself to boilerplate. Like that's probably the biggest downside of this pattern is you end up doing a lot of like mapping from this like repository view model to like, or 
repository GraphQL model to like a repository view model, which ends up being like you know, parameter repo name equals repo dot name, parameter repo owner equals repo dot owner. Yeah. Like, what is the upside of that? The actual practical upside of it, um, two things. One of it is testing. So our view controllers don't depend on an actual or don't ever call or know about any networking, um, no like data tasks, no um, URL sessions or any of this stuff. Um, so when we are creating a test, we can just simply create a mock client that can be like a struct that conforms to this protocol that uh, when called can return, um, instantly return or call this like completion closure with like a list of mocked um, repositories. So we're able to test the actual view state. We're able to use snapshot tests for this stuff. Um, the other benefit of this, uh, well, yeah, I guess um, two more benefits um, is we can create separate apps. We can create separate modules. Um, we had the, the fortunate opportunity uh, to build a retail demo version of our app for Apple, um, which is in app stores uh, globally, thousands of app stores globally, which is really cool. And that app is actually just um, our current app, but instead of using a real networking client, it's a fake networking client. And now there's like, I, I felt really bad for one of the engineers on our team because uh, I loved this architecture decision, but we ended up spending the last two weeks before we shipped this, just like mocking and mocking and mocking. It's like hundreds, maybe thousands of lines of like mocked data. Um, and it, especially like the data has to like, it has to look good too. <laughs> so we're like working with our designer and like tweaking strings and all of this stuff. Um, it was a grind, but the result of it is so easy to understand. It's so easy to change. Um, and if you change anything with the actual product, um, the retail demo like build fails um, because it, it compiles with the actual uh, like view controllers, client interfaces, um, which is really, really nice. And the last thing on top of that is, is similarly um, we can inject a fake client um, to generate like app store screenshots um, and those sort of things. Um, so we end up just being able to automate a whole lot. It, it does like, it does come with a downside of like lots of boilerplate, um, right. but I, I think it's very, very much worth it. To take a step back, I wanted to, uh, to kind of talk a bit more about, uh, you mentioned GraphQL. Uh, so can you just in two words describe what GraphQL is and, and what was your decision behind going with that and not let's say REST API or something like that? I am by no means a GraphQL expert. Similarly, uh, coming from, from Facebook, I know Facebook uh, was using GraphQL heavily on Instagram. We were just using basic REST. Um, the nice part about GraphQL um, is, especially with, with GitHub, we kind of expose the entire data graph of GitHub via an API. And instead of finding um, an engineer on say the repositories team and we need to build a specific mo a mobile specific rest endpoint that has um, very uh, tailored data that we need um, we as client engineers can write a query on the client um, and then hit the server and get the the data that we've requested um, and so that that just enables us to move like really really quickly um, as client engineers and not needing to uh, involve server engineers for every new API or tweak or change um, that we might need. Now it's interesting at GitHub because we actually have like fully featured REST APIs and GraphQL APIs. And every once in a while, there's something that the REST API does really well um, that we'll fetch um, and use that. Uh, but it, our apps are probably like 98% um, GraphQL. From my personal experience at 
Facebook, not only as a client engineer, you kind of feel empowered to, you know, optimize your queries and like add fields, remove fields, whatever. But when the field is missing, pretty easy to go and expose additional fields uh, from the back end. And, and it's pretty modular in that sense. Playing with the app, I noticed that it seems like some parts of the app are being cached on the disk, or maybe my network is just, you know, that 5G network is just so fast. Uh, so can you talk a bit more about caching and kind of you do you hit the network every time or is there any sort of uh, logic that sits at we hit the network uh basically every time um we take advantage of a stock um sqlite cache that comes with apollo um so we're able to cache uh, objects based on their query and the object id um, and apollo will do kind of the storage for us and, and almost not, not all of our interfaces, but a lot of our interfaces we will try to fetch the cache data and simultaneously hit the network. So that way you can see stuff quickly. Um, ideally, we have some sort of like spinner or loading indicator so that um, you know something is happening and, and when stuff changes, it's not too much of a shock. We use that for most of our caching. I'm trying to think if we do any like selecting. I, I don't really think so. Maybe like our, our notifications, um, because we want that to feel super snappy. But mm -hmm. otherwise, we use um, the Apollo caching for basically everything. I'd like to do more of it. Like I'd like to use more of it. We have some issues where like, um, cache entries get replaced, um, they get clobbered, they get purged. Um, so we have like less control over the caching. Um, this is probably something I kind of wish we like did differently from the beginning is to start with some sort of like, caching data persistence mechanism, um, uh, object storage. I mean, even something like core data, like from the get-go and that anytime we're like fetching stuff from the network that we're updating entries um, mm -hmm. in some sort of like centralized uh, persistent store um, instead of kind of having to rely on this, this cache that is like keyed off of IDs, it works, it works good. Um, but we're probably like hitting uh, hitting its limitations right now. Yeah, it's actually interesting with any app that that is dependent on the networking uh, heavily. You have two kind of well, you have many directions, but two of them would be yeah. You can always hit the network and kind of display the results as they come in, or you can design it in a way where your app is always looking at the cache and displaying local data, and then some mechanism goes off and fetches data and updates it in the cache, and then you kind of that's kind of like core data approach when you notice right. the changes in local data. And so the nature of the data for GitHub, uh, do you find it to be way more kind of dynamic and like there are not too many opportunities to cache things to begin with? That is ultimately why we made the decision that we did, um, that there is, there is just a lot of data. The object graph at GitHub is huge um, and it changes all the time. Um, you know, since we're talking about networking, like one of the things I, I want to eventually do is, is take advantage of WebSockets um, or like GraphQL subscriptions and actually like listen for updates, um, like fetch deltas and update stuff dynamically. Um, we just haven't had the, the time yet to do that. Um, but, but, you know, I, we have had debates about like, should we just persist basically every single piece of data that's in the app into some central store? And, and like you said, update the store, emit an event, and then things mm -hmm. update. Um, the problem is like that the definition of that store is going to be huge. The complexity of it is going to be crazy. Like the, the updating, the migrations that are going to have to happen, going to be a huge pain in the butt um, for, for stuff that ultimately we've kind of decided like you, you can't use GitHub offline. Um, like, you know, it, it, there are things that I'd love to be able to do offline. I'd love to be able to, 
and we don't support this today, but I'd love to be able to like file an issue for a particular repository. If I'm like in the subway, put the phone in mm. my pocket. And when it comes back online, boom, um, goes and yeah. posts it. Those sort of things I think are great, but they're very sort of like specific features that we would say like this needs to work offline. I don't think that it would make sense for our entire app to, to work offline unless we were going to be doing something with like um, pulling an entire repositories like uh, file contents and, you know, saving that to some storage and you're going to edit that and then we'll push the changes later. Um, but we, we aren't doing any of that stuff right now. I think if we're pulling like pull requests, timeline entries um, and metadata and the number of people that have reacted to something, um, it just makes sense for that to be online and, and, you, you also run the risk of if it does work offline, somebody doesn't notice they're offline or the, the request is slow, they might think, oh, that's the latest when they put their phone away, then they go to their computer and realize like, oh, geez, it's like changed. And now you've kind of like um, lost a bit of trust with the user um, yeah. where they're like, wait, well, maybe the stuff I'm seeing on this phone is not actually right. Um, and that's something we don't want to do. At the beginning of the conversation, you mentioned that the core of one of the core uh, values of of the GitHub app uh, is notifications, right? And so as far as networking in notifications, you also mentioned that you don't really use uh, sockets yet. So is that just uh, some sort of polling that you periodically do or how does it work? Yeah, we, you know, we fetch um, both for a couple of our screens, we fetch um, first on first load um, or like when the view first appears. Uh, and then we do have some kind of like background timers that when you leave the screen and come back after a certain period of time, we, we refresh. Um, they're pretty basic, you know, we're listening for like app foreground background um, events, but we also uh, kind of monitor when the view goes on and off screen. Um, so say you're looking at your notifications, you open a pull request, and then you are reading and responding and reviewing for like five minutes or something, and you hit the back button, we want to actually refresh um, that page. We don't do any sort of like continuous polling. Um, some of our queries are, are expensive, um, and we don't want to be draining your phone's battery life. Um, we also like com computationally don't want to be just like uh, blasting the GitHub API um, with these big GraphQL queries all the time. Um, so we are we do try to be uh, a little careful about like over polling, um, and, and I think that so far it's worked out. It's worked out pretty well for us. There's a couple like edge cases and bugs that are kind of annoying. Um, you know, say for instance, you open the app from a push notification takes you directly to like the pull request you go back to your notifications page. It might not have refreshed yet with mm -hmm. the notification you just got. Um, that's something where it's like, like I want to fix that. Um, but at the same time, I don't want to be like fetching every 10 seconds or something. This yeah. was like one of my, uh, so like I said, I, I try to keep myself like off of the critical path and this was definitely one of my um, projects. So uh, this is like, I guess one of my like um, side projects over the course of a, Probably, probably tinkered on this for like a, a month or two. Um, I had a lot of fun um, making our app work for iPad. So when um, Apple announced um, a lot of the new split view controller stuff for iOS 14, I was like, this is it, this is awesome. Previously we had had like um, a tab bar experience that was like app wide. Um, it worked pretty well, but like it was kind of annoying to just always have this big strip of a tab bar with only three tabs that like span the entire bottom of my screen. Um, and like, I just wanted a way to replace it. And we had gone through um, our designer and I had gone through so many iterations and so many brainstorms and just like couldn't land on something that we liked. Then we saw Apple who was like, look, we got the sidebar thing. And I was like, that's it. Um, but 
what what was um what i instantly realized is like this is ios 14 only we can't support this um kind of um dead on arrival but then i started like hacking and tinkering um and actually got this all working um, on ios 13. Um, so i'm running ios 14 but the this split view here is not using any of the new apis um, this is actually all just like vanilla split view um, and what it actually is, is this panel here on the left is, is the master view or like the main view of the root split view. And then this panel, including all of this stuff in here is the detail of that main. And then inside here is another split view where this mm. is the main view and this is the detail view, um, which is, this took like a whole lot of work, um, mostly because like getting like the embedded split view is a pain in and of itself. Um, but like getting uh, this to work where like the nice. sidebar button like updates um, and then getting like this stuff to work with uh, like the flyover um, was kind of like a pain in the butt. Um, and then even being able to go like deeper um, in the app collapse and then move like the sidebar here and then go back. And now the sidebar button's over here because I'm actually like um, inside a navigation controller as well. Um, mm -hmm. Was a huge pain in the butt. Um, and then in addition to all of this stuff, being able to do support like a ton of keyboard shortcuts, um, which originate from the sidebar, from the list view, from the detail view um, and components all within it. Um, so being able to write like a, a key command traverser um, that's able to go and grab all the key commands, execute, or then on um, detecting one of these commands, go and find um, the actual, because key command is the craziest API I've ever worked with. It's like all selector based. There's no target, it's just selectors. Um, so you have to do, we do some like crazy mapping to figure out who um, actually responds to the key command. Um, but I'm very proud of this whole setup. I can take this um, in that same instance. Mm. It also all collapses. Um, so I can go here and then tap all the way through to the root um, nice. and then pull this open over on the side here, continue navigating mm -hmm. and then pull it open here. The split view goes to like a pop overview. Oh, that's really cool. And then all the way back and there it's back again. So there's a whole bunch of just like wrangling and uh, learning about UI kit and uh, bending UI kit to my will. Um, but I think it resulted in something really cool. And it was also, it feels very special to be able to give this to um, uh, folks using iOS 13. And there's actually parts about this design that I think um, are potentially better than the iOS 14 design. Um, one of them is that this in, this nested kind of split, uh, split view in here, we can actually um, push uh, something, oops. Let's find a push. Uh, yeah, uh, let's go to files change. Can actually push this screen here, which gets rid of um, the uh, entire split view in here. Whereas the new iOS 14 API, if you push, it's just gonna replace this rightmost right, pane right. here um, and leave this split view here, which is like, okay, now I'm looking at a list of files. And then my middle view is a list of notifications. Like that's yeah. kind of funky. Um, it's kind of mm -hmm. nice to actually be able to jump into this and you know, say I want to go yeah. view code full screen. Um, this is like a very nice interface to do that.
it's kind of funny how it looks so simple and kind of, oh yeah, of course it works this way. But when you explain <laughs> everything that goes into it, it's just insane. It's not simple. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Are you thinking about kind of reconciling macOS app and iPad app? So our desktop app has existed for probably like close to a decade. Um, it used to be a native Mac app and a native Windows app. Um, and about like three years ago, we rewrote it in Electron. Um, um, so the, the app, the desktop app that exists today is really focused on abstracting um, and simplifying using Git um, and is entirely built in Electron. Now, I, I'm not gonna lie, like there's been a lot of times we've like looked at some of the Splitby stuff. Um, we've looked at uh, Swift UI, we've like looked at Catalyst and we start like daydreaming about like, this would be really cool. Um, but, you know, it, being in like the Apple, the Apple ecosystem, sometimes it's really easy to forget um, how few people actually use like Macs, um, yeah. you know, by, by and large, uh, GitHub users are on Windows um, and we have a ton on Linux as well. Um, and so like, while I, I really want to do it and I think it would be really cool and I'm sure, certainly I'm sure we're going to like uh, at one of our upcoming hackathons make it work. Um, I don't know if it's going to do the best service to our users because um, then we're going to end up having to, to support it and uh, everything that we designed is now going to have to consider um, how it looks on the Mac. And, and it's only going to uh, benefit a smaller population of our users. Um, whereas our desktop app today supports um, Mac and Windows and there's like an unofficial uh, Linux fork um, mm -hmm. that I think works really well and is supported by like a, a pretty lean team. As engineers, we often get excited by technology, but then uh, uh -huh. it's gonna it's helpful to kind of keep that in mind. Like, oh, like what about the actual use case? <laughs> yeah, but yeah, that makes sense. Uh, while you were showing the iPad uh, demo, uh, I noticed that in the pull request kind of review uh, screen and all that, there are, there is a lot of UI that's if I would have to guess, it can be either native or web. So like, do you have any webby UIs uh, in your mobile app? All of, uh, all of our comments are rendered um, with WK WebView. And that has been, that's been pretty controversial internally. Uh, controversial because it used to be native and we rewrote it like six months ago to be WebView. Mm -hmm. um, and, and there were, there are huge trade-offs. Um, the native experience was super performant, uh, but it lacked a lot of features and we would constantly have bugs. The web experience, um, we have performance issues every once in a while, but it's so comprehensive uh, okay. with the, the GitHub flavored markdown support. The straw that broke the camel's back is when we discovered that in GitHub flavored markdown, you can write HTML tables that work with like call span and row span. And so we had like, we were previously rendering these, these tables natively with a UI collection view in line. Um, so all of our like uh, list views are table views. And so we had a table cell with an embedded collection view cell. And then we have to go and figure out like, okay, what if this row has a call span, you know, where it's supposed to, this one cell has a call span and then this one has a row span. And then this one has an uneven number of rows. It was a nightmare. <laughs> And we weren't even like fully supporting everything. Um, and we, we ran into, um, we spent a lot of time making GIFs work, um, which we ended up getting work with TextKit. Um, and it was really cool. Uh, I, I think it was super performant and, and looked great. Um, but then like GIFs inside tables, usually tables is what broke us. 
it really broke us. But tables and block quotes and um, uh, code uh, code blocks and like all of these things, um, you know, it, it eventually just got unwieldy. Uh, and so we, we moved everything to a WK web view, which it was the right decision. I think we still have to like do some performance tuning and, and we've done some really good work recently. Um, and, and the, we've, we've spent a bunch of time uh, engineering this. We do a lot of pretty aggressive preloading, warming up WebKit, um, caching these sizes, responding to um, trait collection changes. So handling dark mode, different font sizes. Um, it works great. I think one of the other things I'd love to brag about with it is that um, the web view allows us to get all of like the text input stuff that you expect from like text, being able to select um, the text, highlight the entire paragraph, even if it's got images, even if it's got tables, um, you can do all that sort of stuff. So I think, I think in the end, it's a much better user experience. And while I come from, you know, Facebook where we obsessed over like scroll performance and everything, having a, a finite list of like comments on a pull request um, and also supporting minimum of iOS 13, which uh, the device matrix is pretty high end. Um, it ends up working like really, really good. I have an iPhone 7 here sitting on my desk and it scrolls, it feels like butter, um, even mm. with, with these web views and you can get crazy. These web views can get crazy um, and, and it still feels really good. So um, yeah, it, it's the only place though that we use web views is when we render um, markdown. So. Uh, in comments, markdown files, um, profile readmes, repo readmes, those sort of things. You mentioned that you render you you render the uh, everything that goes for uh, comments in a web view. So, do you get to maintain one front end both for your mobile website and iPad, or is that a separate front end that you have to write for your uh, mobile app? It's a separate front end. Um, we, we did take a lot of the style sheets and stuff and, and bring them over to the app so that we can match all of the styles. Uh, but we had to do some tweaking um, because we, we want to make sure we're matching um, system fonts, uh, system color themes, uh, responding to like uh, the trait collection changes. Um, and there's a couple just like visual tweaks uh, that we did need to make, not to mention just kind of like removing a bunch of style sheets that we don't use. Um, so we're trying to keep it as minimal as possible to, to, to try and make it performant, um, considering it is a web view. Uh, but we did use a lot of the mobile web um, style sheets and stuff as like a baseline. What, what, are, what is the aspirational slash realistic, you know, uh, roadmap for, for the mobile apps? Um, so one of the things that's actually on our uh, so GitHub uh, publicized um, our company roadmap um, and something we just published like 10 days ago um, is enterprise support. So GitHub has, um, everybody uh, that's familiar with GitHub is usually familiar with just github.com, um, open source stuff. Um, but we also have uh, what's called enterprise cloud where companies can use um, kind of a tailored version of GitHub but still hosted uh, by GitHub basically. Uh, but then there's another option that we have called um, Enterprise Server, which is where companies take like a version of GitHub and install it on-premises, um, usually for security reasons, compliance reasons, um, all you know, data privacy and security and all that sort of stuff. Um, and right now our app doesn't work on that because you can't enter like this custom domain. Um, these enterprise installs will have like older versions potentially. And so there's like a capabilities um, sort of support that we need to have. We're actually working on that now and have committed to, to shipping that um, 
pretty soon. Um, so that's one of the first things we're doing, which, which is technically complicated, but thankfully a lot of our architecture already supports um, this sort of stuff. You know, we're able to inject, like I was talking about, we're able to inject clients um, and networking interfaces. And so the actual client implementation, if it's github.com, if it's a custom enterprise server, doesn't actually matter. The view controller doesn't really care. Um, now there's a, a lot more, I'm trivializing the amount of engineering work, but it's going to go I was going to say, it. yeah, it sounds <laughs> too simple to be true. <laughs> it's pretty hard. It, it's going to be pretty hard, but um, uh, the, the team is super confident. The, the fun part for us is that like GitHub is so huge that there's so much stuff that we can do. Um, some, some things that I'm, I really want to get into a lot of the new, like iOS stuff. I would love to play with widgets. I uh, would love to play with um, shortcuts and extensions. Um, I've, I've even been just like tinkering with some, like what could a GitHub shortcut look like, um, which has been really fun, but you know, it, it, we try to be really cognizant before we just, we don't want to just like ship hacks and then end up supporting it. And then, um, you know, we could put ourselves in a position where it becomes really costly to support um, or we decide, oh, okay, this doesn't really work and we're going to delete it. But maybe some people have grown to really like it. Um, and, and those are really hard decisions too. So we're trying to be really careful about what, what we do ship. Some stuff I, I, we're not committing to, but I like am really excited about is like some sort of like code editing or something. Um, I, I find myself using the app uh, and wanting to like just edit a file. I, even though I do code, I spend most of my time writing documents and markdown and stuff. Uh, I am a manager at the end of the day. Um, and so like, I really want to be able to like edit Markdown um, in our app. Um, and, and so that's something that we're talking about as a team. If it, if it makes sense, there's, you know, there's plenty of, of ways we could go about that. But um, I love like the web interface, just being able to click edit um, and edit code. I think something like that would be really fun. GitHub is releasing discussions. Um, uh, there's a, a, a handful of folks that have been using the beta discussions. We use it internally pretty heavily. Um, I, I would love to see it on the app. Um, you know, any sort of thing that we don't support in the app, we, we kind of bounce you out to a web view. Um, so I, I would love to build that. I would love to build something for actions. Um, I didn't think that I would want it, but now that I'm like pulling up pull requests and seeing the, the CI status, I'm like, oh, that failed. Why did that fail? I, I think there could be something really cool with like, um, like signing up or connecting to some web socket and like tailing the, the output of like all these logs, searching it, um, rerunning jobs and like all of that stuff. It's like a challenge. Uh, it's a challenge and um, exercise and prioritization, but like uh, I, I love, I love having too much to do because right. then we can just do like the most impactful thing next. Do you have any sort of client side analytics slash logging and, and what is your approach to kind of make it less, uh, you know, pervasive? Fun story about this. Um, at the 11th hour before we shipped our, our beta, um, we had been using a third party like analytics SDK. And right before we shipped our beta, um, we were like going through like all of the kind of like data privacy stuff. Um, and eventually like got to the point where we were just like, we, we just didn't want our users data going to this like third party stuff. And yeah, it would have been so easy. We would have gotten all of these like metrics without like any, uh, without writing any code, like all of this out of the box metrics would have been so awesome. Um, you know, understanding like which views people are going to, how much time they're spending in the app, getting some basic performance metrics. But we made the, the, the right call, I think, and we gutted it um, because we just felt too uncomfortable um, about sending our, our users data um, to some provider, which, you know, I, I know that providers are, are 
they're going to do, they're going to keep data secure and they have their, their terms and all that stuff. Like we could have figured it out, but just didn't seem like the right move. Um, that said, like we launched blind. Um, we launched without any like analytics. We've got stuff uh, in the app store, in the play console um, that's been helpful. When people interact with the API, we can kind of get a sense of like, you know, how many comments are being left and some kind of basic stuff. Um, but what's been kind of nice is that we like grew to, we grew to live with it, like to not have this um, super granular understanding of like what people are doing, um, which led us to, which led us be able to strike this balance of like, what does the data say? What are our users telling us? And like, what do we think? And, mm -hmm. and not just strictly chasing metrics. Um, yeah. you know, really thinking deeply about what's the product we want? What are the problems that we see? Um, what are the things we're excited about? Like, and, and what are people telling us? And we can do a little bit of kind of like um, back of the napkin validation with some of the metrics we've got, um, which honestly like kind of brings some of the like joy back to like building software and, and not being like so mechanical about it. In the past like few months though, we, we have built like a, a pretty lightweight um, analytics library, you know, to be able to actually understand interactions with the app. One of the things I enjoy about it is it's kind of a pain in the butt to add new metrics to our app. And that, that friction forces us to be incredibly mindful um, about what we actually log uh, because you can't just like go and write a bunch of strings and dump some JSON into um, some analytics service and then it gets like logged to your server. It's, it's pretty involved. Um, and, and I like that. Like, I like that it makes us really think like, do we actually want this? Because this is going to be my afternoon mm -hmm. adding this logging code. You know, the result of that is that we have very few metrics um, only through things that are like super important to us. Vital, yeah. Yeah. And the actual mechanics of it are, are pretty basic. We throw stuff into like a local SQLite store. We have like a, a service that wakes up every once in a while, grabs the stuff out of the store, sends them to .com, um, goes through our data pipeline, ends up in like a, a Hive or Presto um, right. at the end of it, um, which works really well for us. It, it's simple. Yeah. It's basic. We really don't capture like any data besides what's more or less like counters um, and gives us the information we need to, to make decisions and, and to you know, continue following like our instincts um, and, and feedback from people rather than, than chasing metrics. I'm guessing that GitHub is blessed in a way that you, you are heavily dogfooding your own kind of product, right? Mm -hmm. And so does that allow you to kind of gain any sort of insight of like, oh, we, we wanted to roll out this feature, but like from internal use before it even hits any beta tier, we see that it's not exactly working the way we wanted to. We are kind of aggressive on our beta um, testing. Um, we, we really just ship stuff. Uh, we have uh, within the settings of the app, we have a um, setting called feature preview. Um, and we just like throw all of our new features in there. Um, we don't really try to hide things um, unless it's something super secret, uh, which has been incredibly rare. Um, and, and the benefit of that is that we're, you know, we have upwards of 10,000 people in our test flight program um, we just build new stuff. We put it in the release notes. We add this like feature preview toggle and we send it to our test flight users um, pretty early. Uh, I think one of the benefits of our audience is that they're developers like us and like we're hackers, we're tinkerers. Um, we're really forgiving of like 
new tech. We know when new tech is like unstable. We know when new tech is going to change and we love playing with new tech and we're super opinionated about new tech. A bit of a controversial question. Uh, so I might be wrong on this, but I think that I didn't see the repository of the mobile app. It is not open source. Um, the other two apps that I, I do manage, the command line app and the desktop app are 100% open source, um, basically have been since their origin. Um, uh, yeah, we get asked this a lot. And um, I have a ton of, of experience and background with open source. Um, you know, I, I authored and, and managed the uh, Instagram's IG List Kit project, um, which ended up getting a pretty large community. Um, I'm a huge fan of open source. I love it. Um, it's not open source yet. Will it be open source? I'd maybe go as far as to say probably, um, but it's a really big decision that you can't reverse. Um, and with a team as large as ours, open sourcing ads, uh, it's gonna add quite a bit of overhead. Um, it also just like changes how we work. And some people on the team might not have necessarily signed up to be working publicly. Um, there's a lot that comes with, with open source. And I experienced this a lot firsthand um, with community management. And, uh, um, uh, it, it can be really tricky. Um, we deal with incidences at, at GitHub um, with staff and, and with other open source repos all the time. Um, and so it's not a decision that I would make uh, really lightly, um, but it's something that I really value. I believe really strongly in. Um, at the very, very least, what I'd love to see us do more of is open source uh, libraries and components. This routing stuff I talked about, um, there's a bunch of other things that we've built internally that I think are really great, really cool, um, and people could benefit from. Um, but yeah, we're, we're talking about it all the time and we do get asked all the time, um, it, even internally about mm -hmm. like, when are you gonna open source? Um, and it, it, it's something I definitely wanna work towards. All right, cool. Are you guys looking to, uh, to hire people? Where can people reach out to you? Any sort of kind of closing remarks that you wanted to, to add? Yeah, um, so a couple of things I'd plug. Uh, you can always find me on Twitter, um, underscore Ryan Nystrom uh, on Twitter. DMs are open, uh, love hearing feedback. Um, I love hearing like what you don't like about our app. Um, so if there's something you wish that that did or did differently, like I wanna hear about that because that's super valuable. Um, we also just uh, the uh, just this week publicized a feedback repository. So if you go to github.com slash github slash feedback, um, we're using discussions to actually um, publicly facilitate feedback about our mobile app. Um, and so we want people like commenting, telling us features they want, things that uh, they want us to build, do differently, et cetera. Um, so again, tell me, tell me what doesn't work and tell me how the app can be better. Um, and as far as hiring goes, we're hiring an Android engineer right now. Um, that job should be posted either now or probably within like the week. Um, but again, you can just DM me on Twitter and uh, we'll make some connections. But yeah. All right. Very cool. Well, thanks so much for your time. It's been a pleasure talking to you and learning more about mobile GitHub app. Uh, thanks so much. Hopefully you stay safe out there and hope to see you in person one day. Yeah, man. Yeah, you too. Thank you for having me. This was a lot of fun. Hey there. I'm really impressed that you finished the entire video. Consider tweeting your feedback at me, ads, ads. Really appreciate your ideas. Bye-bye.